at the end of the day, my most important identity is actually as a mother. I have two girls, their names are Margot and Tess, and they're 10 and 12 years old. So my younger daughter Tess, she is a kind of a calm and gentle leader, right? She's uh, a very quiet kid um, who has a lot going on under the surface. And uh, I think she's the kind of kid who you could underestimate due to that quietness really well organized and just kind of gets shit done <laughs> in a quiet way. And just a very sweet-tempered, uh, sweet-tempered girl who, you know, doesn't seem to come into conflict too often, just really easygoing. My older daughter, Margot, very, very different. In many ways, she reminds me of myself. She's sort of introverted, a little bit quirky socially. You know, both of my girls are smart. I know every parent says that. I believe it to be true, but in very different ways. So Tess is kind of more creative thinker. Margot is more sort of a math science whiz of sorts who seems to be disorganized on the surface, but somehow managing to get, you know, high marks in extracurricular math, that sort of thing. She's super sensitive, uh, very tied to family very principled, sometimes misses the forest for the trees as a result of, you know, tying herself closely to principles of like fairness or justice or that sort of thing. Can be a bit bossy, as oldest children can be. Those would be some ways I describe my kids. You're listening to Talk Dying to Me, and I'm your host, Lauren Daly. There's a uniquely special way that moms talk about their kids. It's often with this quiet sort of confidence. They have an intimate knowing of their kids' character, of their idiosyncrasies. And like most moms, 43-year-old Megan Roberts often marvels over her girls and the little things that make them, them. There's something about motherhood that allows us to shine a light on those characteristics, to see them in ways other people cannot, and also to see the good in what other people may perceive as bad characteristics, right? So we all have our flaws, and um, those who know us well can see where those flaws originate and can see the good in those flaws and see behind them. You know, one thing I worry about with me being gone is that people will never understand those characteristics as I do, or will never be able to see the good in those characteristics as I do. Up until July of this year, I feel like I was kind of at the peak of life. You know, my relationship with my husband, we were in a really good place. You know, we've been married for 20 years. With our family, I was so happy, right? You know, my girls are at an age where life was just really, really good. We were able to do a lot together. Professionally, I was doing really well. I was just where I wanted to be. While Megan identifies intimately as a mom and a wife, she's also a psychiatrist. And on a seemingly normal Friday afternoon, Megan packed up her office in anticipation of her department moving to a new building the following week. I did good on my last case. I probably spent half my day on this one case, and it was 
a hard, hard case. You know, just had a lot of uh, empathy and respect actually for this particular patient. Had to kind of wade through the muck of it with the hospitalist that I was sharing the case with. And I was kind of proud of how that all wrapped up in my work there. And then after I finished up with that, I cleared out my office because we were moving into the new mental health building. So I sort of took my last coffee cup out of there and I actually took time to pause and look back over my shoulder, you know, at this office that I'd been in for 13 years and just kind of took a moment to think this place has given me a lot and it's been a a good run and we'll kind of see you on Monday in the new building. The next morning, Megan went for an ultrasound. It was arranged following some minor abnormalities in blood work that her doctor ordered after she had some nausea on and off for about a month. I wondered if I was pregnant, but I knew I couldn't be pregnant. So I had an ultrasound the next morning, not really expecting anything to be particularly unusual with it. As anyone who has ever had imaging done and has ever had an experience where something is wrong and you can just tell by the look of the tech's face and the tech is unable to say anything, but it's just this horrendous feeling where you know something is terribly wrong, but you don't know what it is. I knew that it was a mass. I, not in my wildest dreams, imagined that it would be multiple lesions that were metastatic disease. So I remember thinking, okay, it's a mass. That's, it's gotta be a mass. We'll deal with that. We'll cut it out or whatever needs to be done. It's bad, but we will move forward. Um, But when I learned that it was multiple lesions, that was about an hour later because my family doc called me. Um, The world kind of came crashing in because as a physician, you know, that that means game over. Within a few hours of what was supposed to be a simple ultrasound for minor symptoms, one that Megan fully believed would be normal, she learned that she had metastatic cancer. And at this point, she had no idea where the cancer had started or how far it had spread throughout her body. But with multiple tumors in her liver, as a physician, Megan knew that whatever this cancer was, she wouldn't survive it. So at that moment, everything changed. What did you do next? What did I do next? Well, it was my daughter's birthday. So I swallowed it. I went to pick up some cupcakes and came home and packed our bags to Whistler because we were going to Whistler for my daughter's birthday. And I did not tell my kids until the birthday was finished because I wanted to have a nice birthday. I told my husband that afternoon and uh, he was, of course, in disbelief. I remember we were walking around Needle Lake and he actually laughed because the concept was so ridiculous. You you do strange things when this happens to you, right? And illogical things, sort of panicky things. I remember calling Visa because I needed to immediately transfer the card into my husband's name so I wouldn't lose my airmail points or whatever, right? You do these kind of 
irrational things, I guess, just to do something um, for lack of knowing what to do. As a parent, we always think that we can have these hushed conversations or that kids aren't going to know stuff necessarily. And what I have learned since my kids were really, really little is that they always know. They can feel a change in the room, a change in the temperature. They know when something is wrong. So my first instinct was to be completely transparent with them. The only reason we waited a day is because it was Margot's birthday. So we were planning to tell them the day after her birthday. But what happened is that because we were in a hotel room that was smallish, Craig and I were sort of talking in the middle of the night about things and um, thought we were being super quiet and no one else was awake. And my daughter Margot came in and said, uh, Mom and Dad, what are you talking about? And we sort of tried to brush it off because it was probably one in the morning. And we said something along the lines of, you know, health concerns or something general. And she said, no, what are you really talking about? At that moment, I just told her exactly what had happened. I told her that I had cancer and that it was a bad kind of cancer and that I wasn't going to live that long. My other daughter, Tess, she's a bit of a sounder sleeper. She was still asleep. We chose not to wake her up, but rather tell her the next morning. That was probably the longest night of my life because between, let's just call it 1 a.m. and the morning, Margot slept in our bed and we just cried. And it was just heartbreaking to see that moment in your life where your kid's life changes forever, right? We don't often hear about the intimate details of the moment when a person's life changes forever. Even though we'll all one day face a moment just like this. The circumstances might be different, but the general rules apply. Seemingly insignificant details will imprint on your memory, the color of the walls, how the air smelled, what the lighting was like. You'll remember it all. For Megan's kids, the details of the moment they learned she was dying mark a clear line in the sand, a distinct scar in their history that separates before the worst thing happened from after the worst thing happened. I think my husband said, you know, we've been lucky to go through our life up till now without too many problems. And my daughter was so sweet. She said, no, you know, dad, we've never had any problems. Our family doesn't have any problems. And she meant it because to her, that's kind of how things had gone. And now all of a sudden, that innocence is just gone, right? My kids have the biggest problem imaginable. In many ways, Margot was right. Up until that point, her family didn't have any problems. Megan's kids lived an idyllic life. Their family was happy and healthy, and they shared a love that rested on a strong foundation. You know, my husband always says that good relationships are founded on three things, and those things are love, trust, and respect. I think our relationship embodies all three of those things. I'm someone who didn't date a lot of people before I met my husband and who never really gave a relationship the time of day unless I knew it was a 10 out of 10. And when I met Craig, I was 
so confident that it was a 10 out of 10 that we were engaged within six months. You know, I owe Craig everything, really. He has given me so much in life. He's sort of opened up the world to me in many ways. Our relationship is solid and loving and fun. I'm definitely the more serious in our relationship. My kids named us each after an animal. We one day sat down for lunch and thought about what animal we would all be. And I think I wanted to be a butterfly or something, but they named me a porcupine. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a porcupine. My husband is a dolphin. So that kind of says a lot, right? He's like the fun one, the emotional one, the loving one, and I'm kind of the quiet, reserved one. And God, am I ever thankful that I married a dolphin. And they're lucky for that because he will take care of them better than any dad I know could. Soon after their trip to Whistler, Megan underwent a series of investigations that confirmed a diagnosis of stage four cholangiocarcinoma, which is a relatively rare type of cancer that originates in the bile ducts. I was given a median prognosis of uh, 12 months. That has since been shortened because I didn't respond to first-line chemo. So I had chemo, which I started in August, um, for three, four months, and um, had some imaging in November, which showed not only that things had not improved, but that things had actually gotten worse. So that was hard to deal with as well, right? You know, I'm not used to falling on <laughs> the wrong side of the median. <laughs> there was at one point where we were looking at second line chemo options and one of them involved a port. And I was like, well, but I swim like five times a week. Like I'm not getting a port because my oncologist said, yeah, you know, the benefits of the swimming are probably about on par with the benefits of this, right? And I think that's probably true. So Megan decided to forget about any other anti-cancer treatments and, in a way, letting go of the things she couldn't control, like how quickly or slowly her cancer would grow, filled her with an unexpected sense of peace. When there's nothing that you can do about something, there's sort of this kind of calm that comes in just being able to accept your circumstances, right? You know, focusing on the things that you can change, not worrying too much about the things you can't and sort of being able to tell the difference. And I think in many ways that's sort of allowed me to cope. Megan is very realistic about the medical realities of her situation. She knows her body is dying. She knows that there is nothing she can do to change that. What Megan is left to consider, what remains within her power to shape and influence, is finding ways for her girls to continue on in relationship with her, even after she's gone. And it's a bit morbid, but I think really everything I do from this point forward is with the purpose of bettering mostly their lives. There's nothing I really need to do to make my life better. <laughs> my life's as much as done, to be really honest. But whatever I can do to kind of make things better for them is what I'll do, and it just gives you some purpose, I guess. 
I've put a lot of time into making a handover for my husband, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm organized to a fault and I've written him all kinds of instructions. In our house, we have two departments, department A, that's me, and department B, that's my husband. So I've written him all the things that department A has to do so he can take over. I have spent a lot of time uh, dictating letters for my kids, actually. This is something I gave a lot of thought to about whether this would be something worthwhile or not. You know, I thought to myself, I don't want to spend all my time at my Mac, you know, typing away when I could be spending time with them. So what I actually chose to do was to use a transcriptionist. As a physician, we get good at dictating things, right? On the fly, you know, into our phone. And it's a fast way to tell a story. I was using a private transcription company actually to do independent medical exams. And I thought, geez, I could just keep using this app and keep paying them to dictate off the top of my head. So honestly, within a week of getting sick, I just started dictating random stuff. One day I dictated a whole three pages about running and my favorite running routes and, you know, right down to the last detail of where you turn, you know, at the top of the hill in Naramata or Boston or Montreal or Hawaii or wherever my favorite running routes are or my favorite coffee shops or things I remember from when they were first born or when they were little or from their school. These kind of just random letters. So I saved the letters and I saved the audio transcripts for them. The last letter that I dictated was called Milestones, and it's the longest one I did. And in that letter, I talked to my girls about why I am not writing them a letter for every birthday or graduation or whatever. Some of what I said was along the lines of, I am number one cognizant of the fact that I can't predict the future. I have no idea really where they're going to be at, you know, in grade 12 or university if they go to university or in their relationships, etc. And I would hate to kind of predict the future for them because when it comes time for them to read those letters, we're not going to be able to have a conversation around why they didn't end up going to university or why they married a girl instead of a guy or why they had, you know, chosen who knows what over medical school. <laughs> we work through things together, right? And if I just think back to my own parents, when I told my dad I wanted to go to medical school, it was kind of like, what? Like, why would you do that? Like, you know, you could go into business and it would be so much better. And as that relationship evolves, you see how proud your parent is of you for doing what they said you shouldn't do. And I figure I'm not going to get that chance to evolve. So if you're not going to live to see the outcome, I think you need to be careful about what you say about an outcome that you know nothing about. You know, even in 10, 12 years, my kids have already surprised me in so many ways, right? They'll keep surprising. And uh, all I want for them is to kind of be good people and to work hard and to honestly do something that they are passionate about and enjoy, you know? So when I dictate my letters, I talk about stuff like that, not about the specifics of how the story will end, so to speak. There are some parts about being a mom that are easier to hand over than others. The logistics of the job, how the carpool works, where to find the best Halloween costumes, how to make a favorite dinner, and even the more personal details of Megan's mothering, her hopes and wishes for her kids. And then there are the less tangible parts of motherhood. 
the things that can't be so easily dictated and transcribed in a letter, the beautiful, intimate parts for which there are no words, only feelings. And the impossible question that Megan is left with is whether or not those parts, the parts that embody an indescribable love, can live on even after she dies. I certainly don't believe in heaven in a religious sense of the word. However, in some of the writings or dictations I should say to my kids, or just kind of in every day, I've used the concept of my spirit, of being an angel, like having a spirit to guide you. And I believe in that, right? So I believe in this kind of immortal part of you that's kind of your your energy or your character, or your non-physical being that carries on in some way and can serve as sort of a source of guidance to you know, those you've touched in your life. So I believe in, in that. If I was to guess, I think it'll be like going to sleep and uh, that'll be the end of that. So do I think I'm gonna experience some, you know, wonderful place? Not really, I think I'm just gonna go to sleep. But I think that my spirit will live on and will be there and will be a form of presence and energy for my kids and people around me, right? In one of your podcasts, you mentioned the concept of energy and energy as being something that's neither created or destroyed. And that really got me thinking, actually. It really got me thinking. And will that energy carry on? Yes, it will in some way, shape or form. I just don't know that I will be conscious of it in the place that I go. But I hope that it it persists for those that are still here. You know, it sounds like that's that's the most important thing to you. The experience for you is is secondary to the experience you create for your for your children even beyond your physical presence. And I mean like for what it's worth, I've had moments where I'm like, yep, that's her. <laughs> like and you just feel it and you know it and you can't describe it in words. You try to explain it and it doesn't really make sense, but it's um, it's a thing that you know with absolute certainty. And I'm sure your girls will have that too. Yeah, and I love that. And I, I believe in that. When I was getting married, I got married outside and uh, walking down the aisle. And again, I'm not one of these people who talks about this stuff a lot, but I remember feeling the sun on one of my shoulders, which is a fairly usual thing to feel, right? The sun on your skin. And I remember this distinct sense. My grandpa had died fairly close to that time. And I had this uncanny feeling that it was him. And I know what you mean by that. And I pray that my kids will have those experiences throughout their life because uh, they'll need them. And um, I do believe I will be there for them in that way. Yeah, I think so too. To focus on what will happen, if you really thought about it and the gravity of it and the sadness of it every day, you would be able to get out of bed. And the time's going to come sooner rather than later where I start to look and act more sick and it's not going to be able to something that we can kind of push under the rug. And at that time, I think we'll have to get into it more again. But because I'm still kind of walking, talking, functioning well, 
we allow ourselves moments of sadness and moments to come together. But for the most part, we just live our lives. The rest of my time is just spent in the ordinary every day with the kids, right? You know, making sure we have good dinners still and our house is clean. Um, that kind of thing, the ordinary every day. I want to continue to be myself, right? To be kind of authentic still. You know, there was a moment of, so a couple months ago, they were doing something bad and I was going to get mad at them. And then I was not going to get mad at them because I'm going to die. And then I was like, no, I got to get mad at them, right? I've got to be myself. I can't just change all of a sudden and be this, you know, strange person that they don't recognize because normal Megan would have put them in line over this. I got to keep being porcupine, right? Because um, to do otherwise would be inauthentic. Despite the many changes that Megan and her family have faced in the last six months and counting, she makes a conscious effort every day to show up as she always has. A lot of people say, now I wake up and the smell of the air is better and, you know, the chirping of the birds is brighter and coffee just tastes that much better. To be honest, the answer is no. I feel like I've always enjoyed life and things are kind of the same that way. In my work, I've seen a lot of medical tragedy. So I've seen kind of really rare and random bad things happen to people, right? These random awful accidents that leave people either badly hurt or dead. And I have lived my life in such a way that I've always known that could happen to me. And it's sort of uncanny. Like before I got sick, I would have these moments where I would be parked in the car, kind of waiting to pick my kids up from track on a beautiful day and kind of just soaking that moment in out of some awareness that that's special, right? It's no different now than it was. And I think I'm lucky for that because it would be horrible to look back thinking I never appreciated those moments or I never made the most of those moments but I've always enjoyed like the smell of the air and the taste of coffee and the specialness of getting my kids from a track meet and I'm lucky for that and I'm thankful for that and that's one other thing that gets me through these days is I don't feel like I wasted my time. Megan would tell you that it's not the grand gestures or noteworthy accomplishments that make up a life. Life's beauty is much simpler than that. So simple that it can be easy to miss. It hides in plain sight, in the quiet moments of the ordinary every day. And in Megan's case, hiding right there next to it is grief. I have to say the first day of school was probably one of the hardest I have had because it's kind of this benchmark of what I see as being the real new year and a year gone by and the knowledge that I probably won't, not probably, let's face it, I won't be walking my kids to school next September. As Megan faces her last trip around the sun, she and her family are left to reconcile a sort of premature nostalgia, a longing for more of what they already have. A great Christmas would look like the Christmases we've always had, right? You know, we always start the month with an advent calendar, the tree, and dinners, and time with friends. 
but there's always that sort of elephant in the room, right? And we all know it. And it's just this nagging heaviness that this is going to be the last one. And what that means is when we're putting up the ornaments or doing these things, it's kind of this unspoken kind of joy, sorrow thing where we're so happy to be doing it and to be able to do it. But the sorrow at knowing that next year is going to be different. When Megan asked her daughter Tess what she was going to miss the most about her, Tess said, just having you around. In Donna Tartt's book, The Gold Finch, her protagonist speaks of his mother's death in a way that will tug at the mother-shaped hole in your heart. He speaks of a tableau vivant of the daily, a commonplace happiness that was lost when I lost her. Megan anticipates that this, this commonplace happiness, is exactly the thing that her girls will yearn for. And that thought alone is enough to break her heart. It's almost like a physical, a physical feeling, right? It's very hard to describe. It's like you haven't even lost someone yet, but you're already grieving for all these little pieces along the way, right? Kind of ironic that I'm the one who's dying, but I'm the one who's grieving, right? It's hard for me to watch my sister go through this. As the oldest child, my sister and my two brothers are like my kids too in some ways. So it's hard to watch them go through that. It's hard to watch your parents. You know, my dad actually has Alzheimer's, but sometimes he still says the most bang on things, right? You know, I told him, he's like, God, that's every parent's worst nightmare, <laughs> right? And it is. Mostly, I'm, I guess, grieving for my kids and what they'll lose. Um, you know, that love and that person that kind of loves you and cares for you in a way that no one else ever will. One thing that allows me to kind of live in peace right now is that there is nothing I could have done to change this outcome. This is a kind of cancer that is so rare, especially in my age group, and a kind of cancer for which I have zero risk factors, and a kind of cancer that I could have honestly done nothing to detect, right? So I have some comfort in knowing there's nothing that I could have done to change this outcome. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about cancer as this thing, like you have to fight, and it's almost like this innuendo that if you're just kind of stronger, you could beat it somehow. and. It's not true, right? It's nature's always going to win. Megan's right. When it comes to her cancer, nature will prevail over all will. But the power of nature will show up in other ways too. The way I see it, of all life's natural forces, the strength of a mother's love is right up there with earthquakes and hurricanes and king tides. And though Megan's body will become weaker in the weeks and months to come, her love for her girls is anything but fragile. In some ways it'll be this strangely idealized love, right? Because when you're little, not a whole lot has gone wrong yet if you're fortunate in your relationship with your mom, right? And so, will be left in a really beautiful place, right? 
Um, but I think about that sometimes. We're kind of ending at the best part in some ways, which is so sad, but I think it will leave like this really good memory. The specific brand of love that Megan has for her family, for her daughters, is expansive. It can only get bigger. A kind of transcendent love that will course through her girls for the rest of their lives. The kind of love that bleeds from one generation to the next. To hold this kind of love is a risky venture. It's bound to one day break your heart. But a broken heart can still know love. And a love like this can never die. If I were to do it again, I would have done it the same way, you know? I said to my kids, actually, and my husband, I said, you know, I would not trade my life of 43, hopefully 44 years for anyone else's. That also gives me some solace when I look forward, um, because I wouldn't trade. You know, one of my friends said, it's like kind of musical chairs. You want to think about where you want to be when the music stops. And I am lucky because I like the seat I'm on. It's an important thing to keep in mind because um, life's short and unpredictable, right? So you just want to be living your best life when the music stops, I guess. That's it for this month's episode of Talk Dying to Me. A very special and heartfelt thank you to Megan Roberts for sharing her story on the show today. When we recorded this episode a few months back, Megan's biggest goal was to make it to February to see her daughter turn 11. And I'm so happy to report that she made it. Megan and her family celebrated Tess's birthday earlier this month, and they continue to enjoy the ordinary every day dedicated to three very important people in Megan's life. Carolyn, Kathy, and Sarah Jane. The women she entrusts to help mother her girls in her memory. This episode was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. The post-production work was done by the team at Resonate Recordings. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, and our cover art is by the very talented Wiki Turton. If you like what we do, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review. Leaving a review is actually one of the best ways to support this show. And I really love reading what you guys think about the episodes. For more information on today's episode and others, you can check out TalkDyingToMe.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TalkDyingToMe. Until next time, don't forget, one day you're going to die.